Look, I've been thinking about... I want your sorry. I wasn't going to say I'm sorry. I was going to say that I've been thinking about what happened. Nobody made you or Tess take me. Nobody made you go along with this plan. You needed a truck battery or whatever, and you made a choice. So don't blame me for something that isn't my fault. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I am David Chen. And I'm Christian Spicer. Today on Decoding TV, we are going to be covering The Last of Us, Season 1, Episode 3. The Last of Us, Season 1, Episode 3, entitled Long, Long Time. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. And find us on TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube, and Instagram at decodingtv. Christian Spicer, uh, it has been... A really fun time to do this podcast with you. We've gotten a lot of great feedback about the podcast, a lot of people following along, emailing us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Um, and I think it's also worth noting that it is fair to say at this point that The Last of Us, the TV show, is a phenomenon, I think. Um, the second episode scored 5.7 million viewers, which is, I think, the biggest growth for like a episode one to episode two in terms of viewership. Uh ever basically uh like one of the highest numbers that's ever been notched uh, in in that regard and so this is not only a show that debuted really strong uh it's a show that is continuing to grow in a big way uh any reactions to that christian i mean i think it shows how this show has established itself as um event viewing and water cooler viewing in a way um euphoria is another hbo show that i think is really well done but I found that conversation, at least when I was following along, people almost came to it at the end of seasons or came to it later after it aired. And it's like, oh, my gosh, did you follow along? What happened with this? And I think The Last of Us so far has set itself up as I need to know what happened right when it happened. Yeah. I need to be part of that conversation as it's happening because big stuff is happening every single week. And I want to be there for it. I don't even want to wait until Monday after. You know, it's, it, it's appointment yeah. viewing. And I think that's really impressive. Well, on that note, I do want to give a little plug for DecodingTV.com, which is how we support this podcast and allow it to continue. Uh, if you become a paid member at DecodingTV.com, you get early access to episodes. We post these uh, reviews basically immediately after the episode airs on HBO. It comes out the next morning for people on the free feed at podcast.decodingtv.com. But if you want your uh, that night infusion of discussion about the show, uh, then become a paid member at decodingtv.com. By the way, I want to clarify, uh, this is the largest week two audience growth for an HBO original drama ever in the history of HBO. So not like all TV ever, but in the history of HBO, uh, this is the biggest growth from week one to week two. And I will say, in my opinion, this week's episode definitely makes the case for watching it when it airs. Um, this is one that you don't want to miss and that you want to know what everyone's going to be talking about. Uh, we are recording this before the episode has aired, but Christian and I have both seen season one, episode three, and we're going to be spoiling everything from the episode, but we will not be spoiling anything from the next time on preview. We will not be spoiling anything from the video games. We will make some comparisons between what happened in the show and the video games uh, in this episode of the podcast, uh, and we'll dive much more in detail into that in the bonus episode that's going to be available for DecodingTV.com members. The other thing I want to mention before we get into this week's episode, Christian, is, uh, you know, you know, I think 
last week or the week before, I, I told you about this out-of-body experience where uh, I, I thought I talked about something on the podcast, but then I get a bunch of emails like <laughs> making me feel like I didn't say it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think a lot of people thought I was saying like, oh, the show did a good job of representing Boston in last week's episode. What, what I tried to say, maybe I didn't successfully say it, was uh, I like that they put in some Boston landmarks. I'm almost sure they shot it in a different location. That's what I thought I said. Maybe I didn't actually say it. Um, but we did get a bunch of emails this week at decodingtv at gmail.com saying, you, you, you silly goose, David Chen, they actually didn't shoot it in Boston. Um, this email comes in from uh, Ben from Washington, D.C., who writes in, oh, I'm sorry. No, that, sorry. That's a separate email. Um, this one comes in from Kent, who writes in uh, from Edmonton. Uh, Many of the cityscape shots were filmed in Edmonton and Calgary. I live in Edmonton and got to watch some of the filming happen. I could see them from my office dressing up nearby streets and vines and such. Uh, as an example, the Boston State House in episode two is actually Edmonton's legislature building with CG applied to make it look more like Boston State House. Uh, having this show filmed in our city has been a big deal, as it is one of the first major shows filmed here. Uh, Skin and Rink was also shot in Edmonton, incidentally, but I suppose that one is not quite of the same scale. It was fun watching episode two because throughout the episode, I could see many buildings and locations that were obviously from Edmonton and Calgary. I've heard people from larger cities like Chicago and New York City comment on the experience, and it has been fascinating to have the same experience in my hometown. So that comes from Kent. Uh, we also got an email from uh, Jill, uh, who wrote in with with photo evidence. Um she said the overpass they were walking on as they approach the city is the same flyover I commute on daily. The Capitol building is actually the Alberta legislature building in Edmonton, close to where I lived in my 20s, um, end quote. Anyway, so a uh, lot of uh, Canadian uh, listeners to the podcast recognizing their locations in the show. That's always a fun thing. But yeah, it's, it wasn't filmed in Boston. I didn't think it was filmed in Boston, uh, but it was just nice that they nodded to certain Boston landmarks in the show. Uh, okay, anything else before we get into this week's episode of the show, Christian? I, I, just to that point of filming locations, I do love in live-action TV the suspension of disbelief that viewers allow, even when you know it's your city. It doesn't need to be the actual real-life city where it is and exactly how it looks. It's like just enough to make it look like the place and then it's okay that that's not the actual place and i think there are some details that people would not be okay with you know there'd be more uproar about and then there's other stuff where it's just kind of we get it you know <laughs> you know it's like yeah 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 we know you can't actually film this in that building in that actual city but good job for making it look enough like it that it's clearly not that building and i think it i think it's an interesting fine line that viewers have with that kind of stuff where as long as there's effort, I think people are okay with it. And then other times it, there's kind of that, you know, slapping your head uh, with your hand. It's like, that is clearly not, even the taxi says, uh, <laughs> Houston taxi service or something, you know, like the wrong state license plate and stuff like that. Yeah. But, well, that was actually a point that was brought up about last week's episode as well is uh, I saw a lot of praise on the internet for uh, using Indonesian actors and the characters speaking Indonesian during the cold open. But people pointed out that the license plates on the cars show that they were in Bali and not Jakarta. I don't, I don't know exactly where it was filmed, but people are picking up on all these little details. Uh, and I think it's worth noting. So, all right, Christian Spicer, let's begin our discussion of season one, episode three of The Last of Us called Long, Long Time. Uh, and 
I do want to acknowledge that after all the conversation in the last couple of weeks about what's the cold open going to be and what's the structure they're using, you know, why are they doing it this way? Uh, there was no cold open this week. So all that conversation was for nothing. And I'm sorry to have wasted everyone's time, <laughs> literally. Um, I mean, I, I believe Craig Mason has gone on the record and said, like, it's inspired by shows like Breaking Bad, where in the beginning of Breaking Bad, you'd often uh, meet characters who you'd you wouldn't know throughout the course of the episode. And, um, and I was trying to figure out like, what are they trying to accomplish? Are they like seeding in characters we might meet again later? Like, uh, cause otherwise it feels a little bit too random to me. Um, but it does seem to me like maybe, uh, they're not going to use the cold open consistently. So, uh, it's just something that they will use when they feel like they can tell a good story with it and, and not otherwise. Um, yeah, right now it reminds me of like Better Call Saul, which for a while, almost almost every episode, I think more of that than not, but they had those black and white opens of mm-hmm. uh, present, so to speak, before then flashing back to color and, and seeing the bulk of the show. But not every episode had it. Some did, some didn't. And I'm curious as um, the season of The Last of Us continues, if it's something that they dip back into or if it's kind of like, no, we needed to set up this story in a fun and interesting way. And now, you know, now that Joel and LA are off and running, we don't, we don't need that anymore, but it's right. fascinating because yeah, you know, fool me once. This is interesting. Fool me twice. Ooh, we have a pattern going fool me three times. There's no pattern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no cold open this week. Uh, and at least not in the, ep- the version of the show that we saw. So uh, we'll see if there's more cold opens in the future and what surprises they may or may not bring. Uh, Let's t- start by talking about overall thoughts on this episode. Kristen Spicer, what do you think of this episode? Uh, I think we have major problems because this is the best episode yet, in my opinion. And I don't know how the show can sustain <laughs> with each episode being better than the last episode. Where I remember, like, we talked about the pilot, and we were both like, we kind of really like it. And then second episode is like, for me, I was like, this is really good you know it has a lot of those tense moments and leans into moments from the game in a way that were fascinating and now this episode's out and i'm like oh yeah this is <laughs> this episode is like peak tv and we're only three episodes in so i don't <laughs> i don't know where the season goes the tv show has already peaked and it's all, it's only downhill <laughs> from here i mean I, I don't know it was so good this episode was so good we are recording this before most people have seen the episode. And so like, I, I don't know what people's reaction is going to be. But when I saw the episode, I was like, this is a masterpiece. This is a classic of sci-fi TV filmmaking. It reminds, you know, what it reminded me most of uh, is there's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called The Inner Light. Have you heard okay. of this uh, episode? Uh-uh. Um, the idea is like Captain Picard and and the Enterprise crew stumble upon this probe and the probe like flashes, uh, this light at Captain Picard and Captain Picard like passes out and everyone's like, uh, trying to like revive him and making sure he's okay. Meanwhile, like Captain Picard like wakes up and he is an iron weaver, uh, on this planet, Catan a non-Federation planet. And like he wakes up and he, he lives an entire life like on this planet. Cause he's like, I got to get back to my ship. I got to figure out what my, you know, but then like eventually he gives up and he has a wife and kid and you know, all the, and like a family. And, um, 
And he lives this whole life in the course of this episode. And then at the end of the episode, you find out, uh, spoilers for this uh, very old TV show from 1992, that uh, the probe, like all the, all the people from that planet are dead. And the probe was a way of like carrying on their memories, right? And like that's why like um, it, it like infused this whole life in like within the course of like hours, he lived an entire lifetime, basically. And that's kind of what I felt like watching this episode. It's like within the course of this hour, we lived an entire lifetime with these two characters, uh, and it's deeply moving. I I. I... <laughs> We're we're very lucky to be able to watch the episodes early, Christian, and and um, for this podcast, like I feel very blessed and fortunate, and I don't want to come off like I'm bragging about it, um, but also like it's it can be like incredibly lonely uh, because like mm. I've seen I saw this thing that was like such a deeply moving experience, and I wanted to talk with someone. I was I said to you, I was like, text me after you've seen it because I need to like react. <laughs> about this with someone and I, I i put an instagram story up on my instagram page about how like i ugly cried watching more than once watching this episode um it was really very moving to me not only because it told the story of these characters and the story was really well told and really well done but like it's one of those episodes that like made me think about my life differently do you know what I mean? Like for, in ways that I'll get into as we as we talk about the episode. Um, so I thought it was absolutely incredible. It's it's like a, a titan in in the history of you know certainly adaptation, but also like sci fi TV filmmaking. I think. Uh, and it gave you it. your your B story that you were so desperately uh, at our conversation last week, last episode. You're like, there, where, where, where's the B story? Is it just going to be these two characters? And then you know, episode three rolls around and it's like, Dave, hold my beer. Um, yes. I mean, got... technically, you know, B stories typically take place right. contemporaneously with the rest of the story, you know? Uh, but yes, this was definitely, uh, I don't know if TV writers would actually call this a B story, but whatever the case, it definitely was, uh, like time spent away from the Joel and Ellie storyline. Um, and that's notable. Uh, so yeah, we'll see how the show continues to split its attention moving forward. Uh, Agreed with you that, like, I think it would have been a little bit claustrophobic to spend an entire other episode with just Joel and Ellie for the whole thing, you know? Seeing as how we just did that. So I'm curious how they're going to pace the rest of the show. Okay, so those are our overall thoughts on the episode. Uh, But let's talk about some of the stuff that happens. Like, we open on... Joel and Ellie. It's ten miles west of Boston, uh, and it, it's it's it's. <laughs> I will say, you know, talking about people who were saying like this looks nothing like Boston. I have been ten miles west of Boston. It doesn't look like this, in my opinion. <laughs> so uh, I, that was the one thing where I like cackled openly. I was like, "That's not what ten miles west of Boston looks like. That is way too beautiful and pastoral for uh, ten miles west of Boston." But anyway. Um, they, you, that, you went the wrong direction, Dave. That's ten miles the other direction. You went. Oh you yeah, went yeah, the, yeah, You went the ugly direction outside of Boston. Uh, it's this so is true. 10 it's miles. so true. I should have gone in the direction of the trees. That's my bad. Mm-hmm. That's my the bad. beautiful direction outside. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, there is a scene where jo- we find out that Joel is into the art of rock balancing. 
have you have you seen this by the way like this is an actual thing that people do is like rock they uh, they like balance rocks in intricate patterns on top of each other it's i find it to be like a completely fascinating that's my wife practice. yeah she whenever we we do a decent amount of camping uh especially you know more so now during the pandemic um and every time there's you know hers aren't the most intricate but i'll come back to an area we've been hanging out and there's you know several stacks of 10 rocks all laying around and it's um you know like i fascinating and my kids are into it and i think it's like a nice meditative you know recenter the mind and something that you have little control over um in terms of the materials around you and then what you have to set them up and kind of just slow down what you're doing um i thought it was a really nice moment and i think they started that moment on um joel's hand right his bloodied hand which i think mm-hmm. is bringing us back to that moment when they were escaping Boston, when they were 10 miles in Boston, <laughs> when they were in the QZ. <laughs> and yeah. he went hard on that Fedra agent, which of course was him, you know, flashing back to when, when Sarah died. And I think it's this nice um, moment, touchstone moment for the viewer to know that, yeah, this is, I mean, this just happened to Joel, right? Yeah. Like Joel's for us, it's been three weeks, you know, as we wait for these episodes, yeah. but for Joel, uh, he, his whole life has again, completely changed, you know, it completely changed mm-hmm. when Sarah died. Then he established this life for himself in the QZ. And now since then he killed uh, someone he was working with, his partner has died and he's out in the middle of nowhere with this girl that he's trying his hardest to keep as just cargo, <laughs> you know, in his mind, despite the little remind, the literal reminder on his knuckles of, uh, what's happened before i I thought it was beautiful and a nice calm moment that just let the viewer sit with joel there yeah i interpreted it as kind of like a makeshift memorial for tess is that was that a like a did you pick up on that at all or is that just i made that up in my head i I thought it was kind of i thought it was kind of like you know because people like people stack rocks to like meditate and all but also like you know um people place like rocks as like burial mounds sometimes and so i thought it was like he's kind of like acknowledging that tess is gone that was kind of my interpretation. But um, anyway, they have a confrontation. You know, Joel and Ellie have a confrontation. Ellie tells him not to blame her for something that isn't her fault and that Tess and Joel made a choice. Uh, but things are clearly still tense between them as they head off uh, to their destination. And you know what would have really helped them to get to their destination a lot easier, Christian Spicer? Uh, probably an EV by our sponsor today, Nissan. This episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by Nissan as a pioneer. In the electrical vehicle space, the electric vehicle space, I should say, Nissan is always looking for ways to deliver new meaningful technologies to EV owners. After all, Nissan has been making EVs since 1947, and their EVs have now traveled 8 billion miles by Nissan Leaf owners since 2010. That is, by the way, I think 800 million times the 10 miles outside of Boston that Joel and Ellie go. (laughs) 8 billion miles. Um, that's the equivalent of driving to Pluto and back. Do you think that's electrifying? One of their EVs trekked all the way to the North Pole, and Nissan even tests their EV technology on the Formula E racetrack. But Nissan knows that you don't get an EV for just the E. You get a Nissan EV because, because it makes you feel electric. It sparks your imagination. It ignites something within you. It pins you to your seat, and it takes your breath away. At least that's what Nissan thinks about when de- designing their EVs, like the Nissan Aria and the Nissan Leaf. It's about creating a thrilling design that electrifies its customers. 
I love Nissan's focus on creating a thrilling drive and an electrifying life. In today's world, it's so important to look around you, pay attention, and look for all the tiny ways that life can electrify you. And I'm just going to say, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, but like one of the things that this episode of The Last of Us really made me realize is how much of a miracle a lot of the stuff that we take in our daily lives for granted is. And, uh, and when I watched the episode, it really electrified me in that way. And that's why I want to say that Nissan brings you EVs that electrify. Thanks to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Decoding TV. All right, so they head out west on a five-hour hike toward Bill and Frank's. Joel and Ellie are going. Uh, some conversation about their background. Uh, Ellie asks Joel how he got the scar on his head. Joel says someone shot and missed. I missed the other guy that shot me. It happens more often than you think. They arrive at a rundown Cumberland farm store. Just where Joel- pausing at that, at that interaction. I love it for two reasons. One, I think it's maybe the first time Joel opens up about his past to her in any way. You know, there's been a lot of shooting down yeah. um, conversation, like the moment in the uh, building in Boston when Tess runs off and he's like, nothing about, you know, my background. And here he answers her question. He doesn't elaborate. Um, and I also love this idea of like, yeah, people shoot and miss, <laughs> you know, like ammo is scarce. Um, yeah. He hides. Uh, well, we'll get to that. You're about to yeah, get to he- that. He, uh, he, he hides in, he's, he's carrying an M4, I think, right? Um, like a, yeah. an automatic rifle or semi-auto rifle. And he uh, hides it because he's like, there, I have no ammo for it. So there's no. <laughs> yeah. We talked so last idea... week about how we talked last week about how. And I, I, I talked to my wife this week, who's watching the show without having seen, played the video game, like how in the game at this point, you've probably <laughs> as Joel killed. 10x as many maybe even 100x as many people slash zombie uh, you know uh infected infected yeah uh and in the show they're obviously taking a much more measured realistic approach because it's like dude you wouldn't have that much ammo um or ammo is super scarce it must be preserved at all costs this is more of a resident evil approach to ammo you know what i'm saying Anyway. And, and you're not because of that. You're not target practice. You're not shooting all the time, right? You're not honing in yeah. your skills. You're also hopefully not getting into life and death encounters where you're shooting your ammo. So I, re- I really liked it for setting up the world and also opening up Joel. Just I feel like the door he didn't slam it shut. You know, it's like okay, yeah. you're getting there, Ellie. <laughs> Keep yeah. working. Uh, and I do want to acknowledge that there is some like resource conservation going on in the game as well. So it's not just like free for all. But uh, anyway, yeah, good good call out. Uh, Christian. So they arrive at a rundown Cumberland farm store where Joel needs to stop and find some stuff he stashed. Uh, Ellie comes in and she's like really amazed by a Mortal Kombat 2 arcade uh, device that she's seen. This is, you know, the halcyon days when there were still arcade machines in gas stations, Christian. Um, Because again, the last two decades of pop culture didn't happen in this world, right? So uh, Ellie mentions that she has a friend who knows everything about the game and uh, and then she kind of ventures down to look for other stuff. She finds a, an, op- an unopened box of tampons. She's really excited about that. Uh, it's a nice reminder of the fact that not just bullets, but all resources are scarce in this environment. Uh, and then she runs into an infected while Joel is up there searching for his own stuff. Uh, and she gets close to it before stabbing the infected in the eye, I think, or in the head and killing it. Um, and I think it's kind of 
gives you a hint that there's like a lot of rage in this character. You know, she's at first fascinated by the infected and then she's, she stabs it like angrily, I think, you know? Uh, and I guess I'm curious if how you read that scene, Christian. Yeah, this is a scene that I, I watched several times. Like after I watched the episode, mm-hmm. I went back to it and I'm, I'm curious your take. And I'd love to hear listeners takes it to this scene as well, because she sits there with her knife and slices the top, like kind of right above the yeah. infected's eye. And you see the kind of the, you know, growth. Fungal kind, stuff. Yeah. yeah coming out. Similar yeah. to the Jakarta cold open from episode two. And then she takes the knife and, or before that, she's kind of moving it across the eye. And what I was wondering is, is Ellie seeing if there's any recognition mm-hmm. in this thing? Is yeah. there yeah. a human there at yeah. all? Anything yeah. to be left. And what I wasn't sure, but after she cut the head, when I first, you know, sat back on my couch and watched it, I was like, and then she sits there with the knife again. I go, oh, does the infected like nod, like do it? You know, sometimes you have those moments in, in movies and stories yeah. where kill me basically yeah 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 yeah. just like i I don't want to become one of them kill me um and i was like did the infected just kind of tell her do it and i don't think so after re-watching that scene that clip multiple times i don't think that's what happened but that was my first reaction was like oh maybe there is a human trapped inside that thing and it and it wanted to be dead i don't think that's what happened but i do think ellie was looking to see if there was any there there you know, going on inside that infected before she decided like, nope, this is a thing. Ha, kill it. But I'm curious what your take was on it. Yeah, I, I didn't pick up on any of that. Uh, I, I thought she was just kind of curious, like what this thing is. And then when she kills it, I think she's expressing this rage of this creature, this phenomenon that has taken away, you know, a lot of that's destroyed society and like made her life miserable in many ways. You know, like I think she understands that this is like responsible for it. It it reminded me of like how with this pandemic, um, a lot that we have lived through in our real life, like a lot of children have, uh, or teens have missed out on milestones in their lives that they didn't get to have because of the pandemic, like proms and graduation parties and all these other things that like, you know, people just didn't get, because of this thing that they couldn't control. Um, so that's what it evoked for me. I don't know if any of that was... <laughs> you and I are trying to like interpret the scene in vastly different ways, but yeah. Um, well, it's also her first on-screen kill. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Ellie had a life, uh, you know, whatever, however many years of life before this, and she was in Fedra school. Um, but I do think it's notable for her first kill. Like we the, in the Tomb Raider video games, the more modern Tomb Raider video games, the first one, there's this moment where Lara Croft, I think, kills a deer and has this moment of reflection of like, oh my, and she kills a human. And it's like, I, I did that. I did this thing. I killed this person. Is this what I'm going to have to do? And then of course, rest of the game, you murder (laughs) hundreds of people. Um, (laughs) But in the story that seems more grounded here in this version of, uh, for the last of us, I do think it's notable that we've now had both of our main characters um, kill uh, in front of us. Yeah. Well, and I think her reaction to the kills is interesting. It's not like, uh, you know, dipping your toe into a hot pool of lava and like jumping back. It's like she, <laughs> I don't know about savored it, but she kind of like, uh, um, she took ownership of it in a, in a major way. Right. It's like she was very purposeful and intentional and, and there was a lot of emotion in the kill, I think. So from my, from my read. So, all right. Back on the hiking path, 
uh, Joel gets the stuff that he wants to get, uh, leaves his gun behind. The whole episode, Ellie's trying to get a gun for herself. Um, they see a down plane, which Ellie thinks is cool. Again, it's a sign of like what she's experienced that uh, she has an experience that we have, which is like, oh yeah, I guess uh, sitting in a, a, a sky cabin is pretty cool idea. And um, and Joel's like, it's not a big deal. You know, they they flew. All those people in that plane got the chance to fly, and it wasn't a great experience. So uh, we learn a lot about the origin of the outbreak in this episode. Uh, a lot of like more explicit explanation of like how it spread, why it spread, and so on and so forth. Now, Christian, in last week's bonus episode, you did hint heavily that this might be how it was revealed. And I think uh, basically um, you might have gotten some some help from some of the people behind the game. They might have like incepted that into your brain, right? Well, it's, it's in the game. Happened. It, it yeah. happens. So if you listen to the bonus episode, and it's not a spoiler to say now, yeah, they give this explanation in the prologue of the game. And I was like, oh, I think that they're at least honoring that. I don't know if they'll explicitly say it, but it seemed like they were honoring that origin. And now here in episode three, they come out and pretty much explicitly say it. Like, yeah, it's kind of the same <laughs> the same way yeah. it spread across the world so quickly. Yeah. So some of it got into the food supply, probably a basic ingredient like ingredient like flour or sugar. Uh, there are certain brands of food that were sold everywhere. Bread, cereal, pancake mix. You eat enough of it, you get infected. I love um, the call out of pancake mix back to, mm-hmm. you know, episode one where Ellie can't make pancake. I mean, Ellie. Ooh. <laughs> uh, actual daughter, <laughs> wow. Sarah. When Sarah uh, can't make pancakes because Joel didn't get it. He also didn't pick up a cake uh, to bring mm-hmm. home in episode one, mm-hmm. which you think also would have had a lot of this flour. Didn't eat it. the biscuits that his neighbor ate, that their neighbor ate. What did Tommy they eat? Tommy ate they, leftover they... chicken. Tommy ate yeah. leftover chicken wings. Um, Basically, the whole show is an advertisement for making sure you have enough protein in your diet. You know, if if, they, if everyone had just eaten protein instead of uh, carbs, we'd mm-hmm. all be in a better situation here. So, well, Joel does make that joke too in the pilot that he's on Atkins. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> there's the answer. We learn about uh, we are mentioned outbreak day again and learn how quickly it happened. Like it, it changed really, really rapidly. It wasn't like it took years to disintegrate. It, it happened basically in a matter of days. Um, and then we also like see a mass grave. We learn how mass graves occurred, which is that like sometimes they would the government would take people to QZs, um, and then if there wasn't enough space, they would tell you we're going to QZ. And then if there wasn't enough space, um, they would exterminate everyone. And then we get a flashback, and I'm like, oh my gosh, if we get a freaking government flashback to like people getting exterminated, uh, I'm going to be really upset. And yes, those people do get exterminated, but like other stuff happens in the flashback as well. I want to mention one thing before we get to the flashback, which is like the bulk of the episode, right? Uh, which is that the show's vision of the government is like a very, very bleak one, right? Um, it's almost like a totalitarian, like it's a totalitarian dictatorship, basically, um that's like oppressive to its people that has no qualms about like murdering people and the thing is even in like 2003 time period like that's how sarah dies it's like somebody gives the order of like hey shoot joel and sarah and that's how that happens right um i think it does feel it 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 doesn't feel implausible to me that 
the U.S. government could one day be like exterminating its own citizens. Like that, does, that doesn't feel wildly implausible to me. But what I think the trend that we have seen over the course of the last couple of decades is less, um, it is more like incompetence and gross negligence uh, in equal measure with uh, oppression and malice, I would say. Um, and so basically I'm curious how well, well run Fedra is because the idea that this could be birthed under George W. Bush's, you know, <laughs> government is pretty ludicrous to me. That said, uh, I, I did just want to acknowledge, like, it's a very bleak view of the American government. Uh, any any did thoughts you, on that before we get into uh, what happens the yeah. rest of this episode? Did you ever read the book World War Z? Um, no, I didn't. Not the film, Watch the movie, the which is very different, but yeah. It is very different. Um, I, I like the back half, the horror half of that, of that film. In the book, it is um, written as if it is um, kind of first-person encounters or news reports from this event that's happening around the world. And all of them – so when you read all of them, it's like a collection of diaries that have been kind of put together of different people's experiences of this zombie outbreak yeah. happening. And so when you read the whole, you're like, oh, you get a complete picture of what happened around the world. There's not – you know, Brad Pitt's character that's like, now I'm in India and this is happening. Now I'm in France and this is happening. It kind of moves around um, protagonist and, and point of view. Yeah. But what I found interesting about that, and to your point here about Fedra, is I would love if this show did show what's happening in um, France. You know, like how did the rest of the world react? Is, is yeah. every government become oppressive? Because we know we were told that the outbreak hit the whole world. And yeah. then, so did all of Jakarta get bombed? You know, is it just a, a total wasteland now? I know that's not this show's story, but I think this show has done such an effective job of world building that I can't help but think about that stuff. Like, yeah, what's happening in Egypt right now? Again, yeah. not this show's story. <laughs> It'd be a totally different show, but I find it fascinating to think, you know, how do other governments react to this thing? And are they talking to each other at all? Uh, I think there is this kind of vision of the government at, or this vision of a because because again the story of last of us was over a decade ago basically or written written like a decade ago roughly right 2013 is when it came out yeah so it's a vision of the future as like a mass casualty event like a pandemic or an infection or whatever as accelerating government's right-wing fascistic tendencies i think is kind of what the show is is trying to say um and uh, we've gotten a, a, a taste of it in in the actual united states but uh obviously it was a very different infection very different uh president that was in charge when the pandemic hit but it's just interesting to kind of reflect on like how efficient the government in the show is compared to how efficient it is in real life i think it seems to me to be much more efficient in the show you know like literally literally the vision in the show is like within days they're rounding people up and executing them that's literally what the show is saying about the u.s government right um and i just don't know if it would happen that way um and from what i've seen i don't think so i don't think i don't think it would happen that quickly uh but who knows uh maybe 20 years from now people will be in the ashes of civilization listening to this podcast uh, on a leftover iPhone, and they'll be like, wow, Dave Chen was a moron. I can't believe he didn't see this coming. Well, anyway. dear future listener, thank you for using your precious battery life 
on this episode <laughs> of Decoding TV. <laughs> we only have power for five minutes, Papa. What should we do? Well, I'm listening to episode three recap of <laughs> The Last of Us on, of- on Hubba. What's Hubba, Dad? I don't know, son. I don't know. Uh, hubbo hubbo Uh, i was um i was yeah i was telling christian that like uh if you look up the last of us podcast on like apple podcast there's literally um hundreds of podcasts about the last of us um so we are probably i think you know the 115th result that comes up if you look up the last of us um so that person's really digging through the bottom of the barrel at that point if they're listening to (laughs) us on leftover iPhone battery, you know? Well, they came over from White Lotus is why. That's why they're still here. And they're like, you know, the, the mm-hmm. hubbo had some great shows, it seemed, son. Um. <laughs> <laughs> On this thing called the TV. Okay. So yeah, anyway, we get, a, we get a flashback uh, to this guy played by Nick Offerman. We don't really know what his name is, but he seems to be a, um, He's a anti-government... Prepper, doomsday prepper. You know, he has like an underground yeah. bunker, a panic room. Uh, and he's like, you know, he he says, You're not taking me, you jackbooted thugs, essentially, right? To these people who are and, and and here's the thing, he's right, because they're literally rounding up these people to be executed in the language of the show, right? Like it's also a kitted out basement. Like I, I think <laughs> I watch it now in 2023 and think everybody has a million screens. But again, this is like 2003 cctv world you know yes, like it was just yes. we did all have ring cameras and yeah whatever uh, uh, fortresses in our homes and like to think that this person had all that like that network infrastructure to be monitoring all of that from his basement again going back to when this was taking place nick offerman's character is suspicious <laughs> and ready for anything because that place is set yeah uh and it gave me a lot of ideas because it's like, hey, in the future, what if uh, <laughs> there's not going to be a ring camera cloud anymore? You know, if society <laughs> fails, so you're going to need a you're going to need a closed circuit television. Right. Um, but we basically see he has tons of guns. He has like you know monitoring. He has all these supplies. He waits until everyone leaves, and then he basically has the whole town to himself. He loots the Home Depot. He like builds a whole fence, traps everything around his whole house. Uh. I thought this portion of the episode was awesome. It reminded me a lot of uh, the Will Smith I Am Legend, like seeing like Will Smith set up all of his stuff uh, during the course of that movie and like how he lived his life, essentially. It's almost completely wordless. There's some needle drops, but like there's very little dialogue during the sequence. And uh, I thought it was all pretty cool stuff. Any Anything else before the, the entry of uh, Murray Bartlett's character? I really like we get uh, Nick Offerman in a gas mask which we talked about in the bonus episode uh, was very much a hallmark of, of the game and has not been a hallmark of the show yet. And I think it was like kind of a nice recognition of, of what the visual um, attitude of, of the game and of the show. It's the first time we've seen one. So I thought that was fun and interesting and seemed appropriate for this character when he comes out of the basement. And then I loved when he was, you know, pillaging his, his town how happy he was, you know, this wasn't like somber and like, well, it's me against my own, uh, fascist regime. It was like, it's gonna be a good day. (laughs) You know, like it seemed like Nick Offerman's character was living his best life in these moments. And that was such a nice reprieve. I think from the, the standard of world went to crap, 
and I became hardened. You know, it was like, ooh, this is going to be fun. And, and I thought it was a nice juxtaposition to the hardcore violence we saw right before. We start this flashback, you know, they zoom in on a baby corpse and then flashback to that, I mean, skeleton, flashback to that baby's uh, swaddle wrap, you know, and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> and then you see it in the moment. Those people get trucked away off screen. Yeah. And then we have Nick Offerman living his very best life. <laughs> it does remind me of uh, when our real pandemic happened in real life, how um, I did speak with a lot of people who were introverts, you know, mm. and uh, basically the pandemic hit everyone differently. You know, for some people, it ruined their lives. Uh, loved ones died. Financial security was obliterated. For other people, it was actually like really good for them. You know, like if they're introverts, uh, then it's like, oh, wow, like now I don't have any expectation of leaving the house, you know, like, and this is actually me living my best life. And it's just like, it's interesting that like, and, and you could probably imagine Nick Offerman's character, who we later learn is Bill, um, probably wasn't a very popular neighbor is my guess. Yeah. Right? Like people, people probably weren't huge fans of Nick Offerman. He probably wasn't a gr very popular amongst the local homeowners association. I'm just going to guess. I'm just going to guess. Um, and so there is this idea for me of like a, a huge event like this can affect people very differently. And, and maybe there is some joy and vindication to be found for this character in this occurrence. So anyway, four years later, uh, also we see like this, I think we see he's like an amazing cook at this time as well. He's like cooking food, you know, um, hunting them down, I guess, skinning them, preparing them himself, growing food, so on. So Four years later, uh, an alert goes off for a trap, and Bill goes to look, and it's a person. Uh, he thought it was an infected, but it's a person, uh, and he says he's not infected. Uh, Bill does the thing where he has the machine. He scans him and realizes he's not infected, so he's like, okay. Uh, eventually, Murray Bartlett, who plays this character named Frank, is able to talk his way into Bill's house uh, for a shower and some food, right? Bill, of course, is like really apprehensive. He's like, who knows who you are? Maybe you're a government agent. Maybe you're secretly infected. Maybe you're going to tell other people to come here. But eventually he relents and he takes a shower. He eats. Bill makes him a really nice meal, breaks out some nice wine. Um, and it's kind of, there's kind of this like sexual tension between the two of them. Um, because I think it, it, my my get what I read is that Bill is gay, right? But that he probably wasn't out in his former life. That's kind of what I sensed um, from the episode. I, that may or may not be accurate, but uh, but obviously Frank is, and he kind of recognizes that in Bill when he's like serving the food and the wine. And then Frank like starts to play the piano. Uh, Linda Rodstadt, the song "Long Long Time," uh, and then. Frank asks Bill to play. And then he says he's going to leave uh, after Bill plays. Bill plays. It's a very moving performance, I thought, from Nick Offerman. Um, and then they kind of kiss and uh, and get together. Uh, what did you think of this opening series of scenes, Christian? Yeah, until the piano moment, I wasn't sure if Bill's awkwardness was, you know, he has been alone for four years. And it seemed like, you know, if I were to extrapolate out, still having the best day ever, every day. You know, I don't know what he busies his time <laughs> with, but like yeah, trapping, yeah, yeah. hunting, 
you know, repairing this, that, and the other. And when we see his town in that area, you know, he's happy and having a good time. There's a moment before that when a trap goes off and kills an infected. And he's like, I can watch this all day. And he seemed very smitten, you know, like very content. And then, so I wasn't sure when um, Frank shows up, if some of that awkwardness was like, I, I guess I, is this what I'm supposed to do? I should serve you kindly. And it seemed a little off and it seemed to be there. Um, I got the impression that Bill had a close relationship with his mother who was no longer with him um, and, and wasn't in that prior moment either when um, federal agents came and rounded up the town. It didn't look like they took his mother dragging away, mm-hmm. but I got the impression that maybe he's in his mother's house or had to live with her. Um, and so I wasn't quite sure what to to make from it until that moment when he pours the wine and holds it, you know, like a sommelier would and, and hits it. And it's like this um, Frank's character recognizes that it's this thing that pairs perfectly with this fancy dinner. And, and then Bill has the line or Frank's like, oh, you, you knew to pair that wine. And, and, and Bill's like, yeah, I, I know I wouldn't look like the type who would know that. And Frank's like, no, you do. And Nick Offerman then as Bill... I think has such a beautiful nuanced reaction to it of like the, my read was like almost involuntary butterflies. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Just once we got to that point, I was already thinking like, this is some of Nick Offerman's finest work ever. Um, Yeah, I think so. I think so. When he was cast, I was like, Oh, it's going to be like slapstick. Oh, it's just putting Ron, Ron, the survivalist in. And it's not, it's not Ron, the survivalist from parks and rec. It is, it is beautiful. And then the moment on the piano, as you mentioned, I think it, I read it, you know, less as uh, Frank asking Bill to play and more Bill, Bill being like, Frank, stop. <laughs> yeah. The song is beautiful and precious to me and you're butchering it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then he sits down and has this very emotional reaction um, to this song about love and, and loss. And um, yeah, that that through line of them meeting to them that kiss and them then going to bed, I think was such a beautiful um emotional arc told um fairly succinctly also. But I think the 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 actors did a lot of the heavy lifting in those scenes. Yeah, and I, I think it's really well played because you're establishing this character of Bill, um, who is from the game, and you want him to have these certain characteristics, like he's a survivalist and so on. And it's like how are you going to plausibly make this person have a relationship with someone else, which is kind of the end point that they want to, to get to uh, in this episode. And it's hard to imagine somebody who's been isolated for years, who probably even pre infection was like pre the infection happening all over the world was pretty isolationist. Um, It's hard to imagine someone like that, like opening up his home to someone else at all. The only way to make that work is to give Frank, in my opinion, a very strong personality. Like he's somebody who's very bold. He's like, I'm going to, Hey, come on, shower food. You know, like many people would probably be like, Oh, you let me live. Thank you. I'm going to, we're never going to meet again, but he's like, come on, let me, you know, like, and that's risky for Frank too. You know, like it's not. So there's a lot that's in Frank's personality and also in the performances of both characters that make me buy that this relationship could happen with this guy who, is a doomsday prepper and who like has not talked to anyone for years and probably didn't talk to anyone for years beforehand either, you know, like, um, and so I thought it, I thought they did some good character work along those lines. So, yeah, I think Roy Bartlett too was, was incredible. I mean, it's not, Oh, here's the guy from white Lotus season one. Um, 
yeah, beautiful acting from both of them. I, I, I don't know how well these scenes would have worked um, with less uh, accomplished actors playing the roles. I'm not to say they weren't beautifully written and shot and staged, but I do think what Murray and um, yeah. Nick brought to these roles uh, was a lot. It, yeah, it really, there was a lot there that's not on the page, I would argue. You know, or maybe it was on the page, but it wasn't in the dialogue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, beautifully directed. Lot... For all yeah. I know, the director yeah. was pulling this out of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Um, but anyway, maybe it was on the page in, the, like, in terms of like stage directions. But like, you know, uh, anyway. Uh, it's three years later. There's an argument between Frank and Bill. So they, they basically have gotten together. They are like living together as a couple during this time. Well, it, um, ends, it, it ends with Frank being like, because uh, they make love. And he's yeah. like, I don't do this for anybody. Uh, so I'm not gonna not gonna have sex with you and then leave. I'm gonna stay for a few days, and then it hard cuts to several years later. <laughs> several years later, right? <laughs> and you can kind and of like fill in what happened. Yeah, and they're having a fight, and um, Frank wants to spruce up the house and the surrounding area, and they want to invite friends over to visit. Uh, and then it's like, huh, which friend? Someone he's been talking with on the radio. We later learn is Joel and Tess, right? And the. <sighs> The scene where they're having dinner on their front lawn, dude, freaking wild, wild, man. Because I don't know about you, but like uh, we definitely had to take measures during COVID to uh, to see people outside, you know, and we actually have converted our garage. It no longer has a car <laughs> in it. It's like it has a, a, a table with a bench benches in it so we can like see people in our garage. Um, throughout the year because it rains a lot in Seattle. So like uh, I was just like, wow, like it's just so fascinating to watch kind of an alternate version of the pandemic play out in, uh, in this show. Uh, you ever have any outdoor lunches or outdoor dinners where you are Christian? Yeah, we, we moved right as the pandemic, like in February of 2020. And we were like, this is going to be great. We can have people stay with us. And then it was like, <laughs> Oh, this is great. We can sit outside we, with people. <laughs> we can sit outside on the front front porch with people, right? Yeah, um, uh, yeah. And I love seeing uh, less weathered Joel and Tess. You know, we had yes. only seen Tess beat up. Not only was it several yeah. years later of a hard life, but literally beat up, and we only yeah. saw her kind of down and out. And it was fun to see her um, before uh, all yeah, of that. It was like, happened, I, like I thought outbreak, we were done with but... I thought we were done with Anna Torv in the show, and yeah. it's like, oh, get to see Anna Torv again because. Yeah, she's I think great. She's, she's great as a character. So it's great to see her. Um, but yeah, uh, Bill tries to tell Joel they don't need his help. But then Joel points out things around the area that need fixing and how he can provide supplies. I thought this is all really well done. Just really well, good, like world building of like, he, here's a bunch of practical stuff that you might need, like razor wire and like other thing, you know, electronics and shot medications and stuff like that they have access to in the QZ that you can't get out here. Um, we also learned the start of the radio code. Um, and Joel warns Bill about raiders that could come his way sooner or later. Uh, but Bill says we'll be fine. Now, this was also alluded to, I think, in the first episode where the radio guys like there's like slavers and raiders out there. We haven't seen these people yet. We get a glimpse of them here, uh, but we haven't really met any. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if we'll meet any throughout the course of the season. Um, anyway, it, it is cool to see them in a, in a different uh, time and place. Joel, Joel and uh, Tess in the intervening time period. And I like Joel and Bill as equals in a way where, you know, they're, they're kind of both sitting at that table, kind of chest puffed, you know, like I can take yes. care of my own. Well, I can take care of my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Please don't point Frank the gun at me. Yeah. 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 It's uh, 
There's a scene three years later in 2013 where they're jogging and Frank shows Bill the strawberries that he's grown. He traded them to Joel and Tess for uh, for one of the guns, uh, these strawberry seeds. And uh, this was the scene where I like ugly cried, you know, because the idea that like, you know, I, I will go to Costco and I'll buy like two, two, two pound cases of strawberries, right? Just without even thinking about it. And to see these people celebrate this, what is for now a basic good you can easily purchase, but for them is like this rare, this rare miracle. It's it's just very moving. You know, it makes you want to like appreciate the things that we take for granted more in our lives to watch a scene like this. Um, So anyway, any, any thoughts on this Christian before we move on to the next scenes? I think even before we get to the strawberries, them jogging and when, um, you know, Bill is saying to Frank, like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting old faster than you. And kind of that moment in relationships where you can maybe see envision drifting happening. Like it hasn't yet. You, you still very much love the person, but you, you, you know, I, I feel like Bill is wondering like, is Frank um, going to leave me behind? Am I dead weight at some point? Like I can't do what he wants to do anymore. I can't um, fulfill these dreams and desires that maybe he has. And I think, you know, there's that doubt creeping in and then it's just the opposite. You know, it's this beautiful moment where Frank has been planning the surprise for Bill and, you know, wants to build this life with him more so. And there's that old adage of like, you, you plan a garden because you believe in a future. Um, and I love seeing that moment. I'm going to get emotional if I talk about it for too long. Yeah, um, same, same. But it was, it was, it was beautiful. And again, Nick Offerman in that moment eating the strawberry, I thought was was just an exquisite performance. And then the when they go to presumably uh, have sex out uh, in the open, like not on the strawberries. <laughs> it's such a nice, it's such a nice moment too. Like in the throes of passion, but also, you know, that's our fine china, not on the not on the kitchen table, babe. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, just a really, really powerful scene. It really deeply moved me a lot. So let's take a break and talk about our sponsor. This episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by the McDonald's app. Say it's raining outside, you're stuck working late, maybe you had a really long night, you're trying not to leave the house. Just order Muck Delivery in the app and get McDonald's delivered to your door. You can now order Muck Delivery in the McDonald's app because every time you order in the app, it earns you points towards free food. Free food! Let's be honest. Who doesn't love free food? Uh, I know for me, I love using the McDonald's app. I think it's super intuitive, well laid out. It makes ordering food fun and easy. But beyond that, when I'm settling down to watch TV, I know I got to have some nosh with me. I got to have some nice food uh, to fuel me through that viewing and to get me through an episode of Decoding TV. And that's why I think using the McDonald's app to get Muck Delivery is a great time and it really serves my needs. There's always a reason to order in the app. So download the McDonald's app today at Participating McDonald's. McDonald's download and registration are required. Delivery prices may be higher than at restaurants. Delivery and other fees may apply. Order in the McDonald's delivery app. You're going to have a great time. I love it. I think you'll love it as well. Thanks to McDonald's for sponsoring this episode of Decoding TV. So then we get a couple of other glimpses of life throughout the years. Uh, Raiders show up. Frank wakes up from sleep. He goes looking for Bill. Bill's out in the street just with a rifle, just shooting people. Uh, we see kind of the extent of Bill's traps. They like set people on fire. It's pretty wild, like what he's able to accomplish. Um, and Bill thinks he's dying and 
Frank uh, is trying to like assure him, and you know, Bill's like, "Look, there's yeah, a lot Bill of stuff I got to tell you." Yeah, Bill, Bill gets, gets shot. shot. Right? Sorry, like maybe distracted by Frank because uh, yeah. Frank comes out and Bill's like, "Get back to bed," or you know, "Get inside." Yeah, because before that, Bill was ram not ramboing, but like had it under control. It seemed like, and then he notices Frank and he gets shot, and Frank helps him inside. And at that point, Bill is like you know, I'm done. I'm shot. I'm dead. I'm never going to make it. And and Frank is there to nurture him and, and it looks like, you know, dig the bullet out and get him patched up. At this point, I want to bring up how the video game is different from the show, at least a little bit. Um, because I think it's, it's relevant here because I think basically I think the show is in dialogue with the video game and, and the plot that we know from the video game. So extremely short story, which we'll go into in more detail in the bonus episode. But like in the uh, video game, you meet Bill. Bill alludes to a relationship with Frank. Um, You never meet Frank. You never even know what happened between Bill and Frank. Right. That's kind of what happens in the video game. So all this stuff is show invention. But we also know that Frank died in the video game by the time you meet Bill. Like, And Bill is alive when Joel and Ellie encounter Bill. Um, but Frank is dead and Bill is still alive. And so this whole time I'm watching this episode, I'm thinking to myself, like, how like how are they gonna get to the point where Frank dies and Bill is alive? Right? Like that's that's what I assume they are going to get to at the end of the episode. And then they had this big head fake where it looks like Bill's gonna die, which I was like, wow, that would be like a huge subversion of what we are expecting. Um, but then what ends up happening, of course, is that that's a head fake and actually both of them die, um, which is another subversion. So I just felt like, yes, the, sh- the episode, I think, is strong and stands well on its own. But it's also just fascinating to th- think about how it's in dialogue with like what happened with the show and how like video game players will expect one thing and get completely f- surprised multiple times during the course of this episode. Christian, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll save some of them for uh, a, a bonus yeah. chat where we can dive in a little deeper. But I think it also speaks to the theme of the show and the story and the story it's telling and this idea of love and how to show that and how the show can be a different version um, than a game where unless as the game you gave it gave player control to Bill or Frank, you know, you have this moment where you've left the person you're controlling alone and what would that feel like to have this long moment where you play as a different character only for a little bit i think in a gaming space that would be more complicated to pull off in a rewarding way but in a tv show it doesn't feel as foreign to spend time observing somebody else as long as thematically it alludes to or plays into the themes and ideas that are present in the show and i think this episode and those moments between bill and frank do that perfectly and i'm very curious to see how much of this is foreshadowing um joel and ellie as it goes is this mapping that relationship you know you have the gruff person the funny person the one person who's not ready for love the person who opens the door for love the person who doesn't want to build a life the person who sees a life worth building the protector the protectee becoming the protector i'm i'm curious how much of that is is showing us the the broad themes of the show all condensed into one episode and i think that works beautifully in in tv and film and i think would be a a little more awkward handled in a game where now you're controlling this character but just for a bit Mm -hmm. 
I also think if I look at the broader context of the TV show, like the the quote unquote function of this episode, I think is, you know, um, the future that they're living in is very bleak, right? And so far, at least, we haven't seen that much uh, room for hope uh, and positivity. And I think an episode like this, which does it via flashback, albeit, you know, like uses a flashback to to tell us like, hey, like that there was time in the post-apocalypse that was meaningful for people, basically. Um, and it wasn't all Fedra agents dealing drugs and killing people, basically, right, for, for everyone. Um, anyway, more to discuss in the DecodingTV.com bonus episode. So uh, it's years later. Bill has survived getting shot by the Raiders. Frank's in a wheelchair. He has some kind of disease. It's not explained what it is. I interpret it as cancer, um, but... You know, I don't think it's I ever took said it to it be is. like um, Parkinson's or cerebral palsy mm, or something yeah. like a neurologic disease that because he seemed to have um, motor skill, like he he couldn't mm-hmm. paint the way he used mm. to. He was like shaky with a cup, um, right? You got to see his like read. paint. You got to see like his painting skills like deteriorate in the course of this one painting that you see um, is a very in a very like um, unsettling touch, but. Uh, you see like Bill taking care of Frank, his pills and like taking care of them as they're older in life. And, and then what follows is like one of the most emotionally devastating sequences I've seen in TV in a really long time, which is we see Frank wake up and he, he says like he took, he got into his wheelchair and he says, it took me all night to get here. You know, like you can imagine like him struggling hours to get into this chair and, and he looks at Bill and he says, like, this is my last day. And he kind of lays out what he wants his last day to be. And it's all very moving. It's very powerful. It made me think a lot about, um, honestly, you know, <laughs> as um, as longtime listeners of Decoding TV will know, uh, I spend some amount of time thinking about uh, death, you know, my own death. Um, I have like advanced directives and like all that stuff already in place. Like my will, everything's already in place for that. Um, And like dying with dignity is something that's very important to me, you know? Uh, And people have very differing opinions on how people should die. Like very strong, polarized, different opinions on how people should die. And this to me felt like such a beautiful, compassionate portrait of death with dignity of being able to die on your own terms and how meaningful that can be and, and how peaceful it can be. Um, but yeah, just that moment when he's like, I've decided I just, just for people to be able to decide, like, this is my last day. Like, this is it. It's such a uh, power, you know, I'm getting a little choked up talking about it, but it's such a like powerful statement to be able to make, you know, and it's like, and I'm, people have different thoughts. So like, if you don't feel that that's how people should, operate that's that's fine but for me i'm just like this is like this is what the vision should be you know for for people when at, they're at the end of life is like they should be able to go out on their own terms and set the terms of the last day not everyone gets that chance you know um but but frank was able to in the show and that was a lovely thing okay i've been going on long enough christian any thoughts on this last day i'm sure we have much more to say about it i think there's also power in it in the world in which they are living 
Um, and I know in our world in which yeah. we're living, the day-to-day is a struggle for a lot of people around the world too. And every day is a, it's a fight for survival. I don't want to diminish that. Yes. Um, this show sets it up as the new normal for almost everybody. You know, there's the scene in the pilot of trading your ration card for shoelaces and everything has duct tape on it and stuff like that. And now you've had these two individuals that have maybe lived their best life after the world quote unquote ended for everyone else. And so to have Frank, um, you know, have the, the grace, um, and I perhaps privilege to choose his ending versus so many others who didn't, um, because of the outbreak and the infection and, and all of that stuff, I think yeah. is, is powerful. Also, I think some people in the world of the show could argue like, how dare you? not take every day you're given. Um, and I think we see a little bit of that in Bill, where I think Bill at first is a little angry with Frank. And then at first, uh, and then after that, I think sad for himself. And I think that says so much about his character and about people, you know, the reaction to mortality and death and kind of the stages of grief and self-pity and stuff like that. And again, um, I vote on no acting awards uh, in any way, shape, or form, but I would push many of them toward Nick Offerman. Yet. Yeah, exactly. Yet. Um, I give out the award uh, for best acting performance on a show I discuss on a podcast is the award I give out. (laughs) Um, And I think Nick Offerman's performance here, again, is beautiful. And I think so much is said um, in his posture and his his, um, expression and um, the, the, the tremble in his voice as he kind of comes to terms with um, what Frank wants done and Frank's line, something along the lines of, uh, do you love me? Bill's like, yeah. And he's like, well then, you know, why don't, why don't you love me the way I want you to? Um, Super, super powerful, super powerful stuff. And then Bill's decision, you know, to also um, see that his purpose is done and that he's also had a good life is, uh, you know what a character arc from the guy gleefully living a, 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 a isolated Looting life. Home Depot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, couldn't have been happier to be alone. To now being forced um, with the thought of living alone and thinking that he has no purpose. Um, it, it's it's it is beautiful and heartbreaking um, in all the ways that good storytelling can be. Yeah, yeah. A uh, couple of like amazing lines in their exchanges. There is this scene where. Frank is talking about how like I've had good days and bad days, but I've had more good days with you than most people. I think, or so, something along those lines about like good days. And now he had more good days with Bill than anyone else. And you know, that was very, that's a very beautiful thought. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, you, you find out that Bill has also drugged himself, that he is also going to die. And um Bill says, quote, this isn't the tragic suicide at the end of the play. I'm old. I'm satisfied. And you were my purpose, end quote. And, uh, you know, it's a very moving idea uh, that, like, Bill found his purpose in uh, being with this person and helping this other person, you know, in, like, living a life with this other person. So, anyway. And then that is the end of that storyline. And And then we don't we never see them go into the bedroom and like lay down or like, we don't have any access to what I, we just need to imagine how that plays out. Um, and again, I'll just say like, as a, 
as a as a video game player, I'm like, maybe Bill lied about that and he's still alive when Joel and Ellie get there. Like, who knows? Um, but Joel and Ellie arrive and they kind of start looking around the community and they start piecing things together. Like, you know, they look we see all the wine glasses and and oh such great like set dressing and direction of like showing you these props of like seeing these props because it's it's not obvious it's not immediately obvious that like oh of course you would see the stuff that they would left there it's like no the the show had to pick props that <laughs> you would yeah. recognize um it had to show them in a way that was prominent and then like when joel shows up with ellie and they see the props it's like they're making the connection of like oh like who knows how long it's been since that stuff we just saw maybe weeks maybe months maybe years we don't know um so yeah ellie finds bill's letter as she searches the house uh, and it seems like Bill has anticipated that Joel's probably going to find them eventually. And uh, Bill lets Joel takes whatever he needs. He also says, I never liked you, but I respect you. Uh, in the letter, he writes, quote, I used to hate the world and I was happy when everyone died. But I was wrong because there was one person worth saving. That's what I did. I saved him and then I protected him. That's why men like you and I are here. We have a job to do. Uh, end quote. And then... Uh, the letter also says like, Hey, use all of my stuff to keep. And then Ellie doesn't finish reading it because I think he was saying like to keep Tess safe, um, which obviously they weren't able to do. So, and yeah, that was a very deeply moving moment when like Ellie stops reading and like, they never, you know, the, sh- the show like expects a lot of you. It doesn't say like, it doesn't explicitly call out that it was, te- it just expects you to like put that together that that's what's happening. Right. And well, it does. Yeah. I think it, it- Yes to what you said, but it does – when Joel looks at the letter, it doesn't linger oh, on it, yes. but it does show Tess safe. Like you can you can read that for yourself, I, but it yes, doesn't do I, like the I, slow I forgot about push. That. I forgot about that. That was my that was my bad. But you're, you're right. It does say Tess safe, but like it it gives you that moment where you can kind of like put it together before you even get to that. Yeah. It, it gives that moment. So the, the Tess safe close-up is for those who could put it together. But when I got it right away, and it's like – Ellie's reaction to it was also really powerful too. You know what I'm saying? So um, you're right. Shouldn't give the show too much credit, Christian. Thank you for that. No, um, no, no. But... I think even when it says the test <laughs> yeah. safe, it does it in a way that gives the show credit where I can think in other stories, it will be like, they put the letter down and we hold on Tess <laughs> safe. Yeah. Zoom yeah. in, Tess, zoom in, Tess, zoom in. And it doesn't do that, right? It, mm-hmm. you could be a blink and you miss it moment. But I think, as you said, the performances are there to let you know before they even confirm it um, with the letter. Uh, Joel and Ellie loot the house. Uh, Ellie grabs a gun. Like the whole time Joel's like, no, no guns. You can't have a gun. (laughs) There's a wall of them. (laughs) Yeah. My sense is Joel's aversion to Ellie having guns is probably like, um, he doesn't want guns associated like near children at all for personal reasons, obviously. But Ellie will not be cowed. She ends up sneaking a gun into her backpack. Literally a Chekhov's gun, I think. Um, I think that there... Or no, no, no. This was Bill's gun. This was Bill's gun. Yeah, not Chekhov's. Mm, it was, not Chekhov's uh... gun. It's, but <laughs> Chekhov's would be a gun on the wall, right? So, like, uh, this, would be, this would be Chekhov's backpack gun, I think. Um, mm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, they figure out a way to put together a, a battery into the car and then they uh they now have wheels they can drive away uh, anything else we learn in this scene that we want to mention um they're still going to try to find tommy um and 
they uh, Joel takes they both take showers uh, and change into clothes that are apparently from the video game, right? Like the, these are the recognizable outfits from the video game. Um, and it closes with them in the car listening to a tape of Linda Ronstadt uh, singing "Long Long Time" as they drive into the distance. I thought that final shot was so powerful. I was just like, Jesus, this this episode will not relent with the emotional gut mm-hmm. punches. Mm-hmm. You know, this shot when they're driving into the distance and it kind of pulls back slowly. And you see, I think it's a drawing that Frank has made of Bill, you know? Mm. Uh, and it's like this very like moody drawing uh, uh, and kind of a symbol of their love. And, and it's just like, oh, this is so powerful. And what a devastating way to end the episode. And then, of course, the episode ends. And um, I just thought it was incredible. Anything else you want to say about the end of the episode, Christian, or the episode as a whole? Well, as a, a big fan of the games, I, I like how it did the, you know, game outfits. Again, subtle. It, it It's not mm-hmm. like punching in. It's not it's not with a wink. It's not a joke. It's yes. not a joke that yes. we're in on. It is a believable moment to change, which they've established. It's Chekhov's shower, right? For uh, Broadly speaking, <laughs> Chekhov's yeah, yeah. gun is an yeah. idea that if you show something prominently – that looks like it's going to be something you have to pay that off as something, which of course now there's yeah. all these examples right. of subverting that expectation, but that's the expectation. Don't hint at story <laughs> yeah. without it being story. But yeah. in this, they, I mean, they hint at shower and outfit change early with, with, with Frank, <laughs> it happens again, shower mm-hmm. outfit change. And they get these outfits that are believable in world. It's not like all of a sudden they're outfitted, like, like using Tomb Raider again, like Lara Croft, like, dual pistols on my hip you know it's like again believable in world outfits which i think is is done nicely and for an episode that is so um heavy uh and emotional i think it does a really good job keeping things light as well i think frank's character does a good job with levity and also the moments of levity from ellie the first the plane and then her experience being in a car you know it's a terrible world that they live in um from our perspective, especially, but for the only world that Ellie has ever known, um, Bella's expression and the way she handles that moment of, of being giddy to be in this crappy Chevy S 10, you know, is, is incredible. And it jumps out of the screen. Like her joy is infectious as long, long time plays. (laughs) And it's like, Oh man, Ellie, girl, you have some hurt coming. I think, I think you have some hurt coming. But in that moment, she's so happy. Why, it's why, why, why does she have hurt coming in your estimation? Have you watched the show, Dave? Uh, these are, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is speaking of pattern. Two new characters introduced. They're both dead. So so far, Sarah dead. Episode one. Episode two, Tess dead. Episode yeah. three, Bill and Frank dead. So Bill and Frank's death is a is a beautiful death, but still mm-hmm. death. Like I don't. Next character we meet, I don't care if it's like a person at the lone last working gas station in town. Uh, Susan's dying, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Well, I I guess uh, I say that because, yes, the first two episodes were quite bleak. um, But this one was quite life-affirming, I thought. So maybe there will be more life-affirming in the show than you think, Christian. That's all I'm saying. So we'll see. Um, But, yes, they are living in a post-apocalyptic hellscape where... (laughs) Uh, infected threatened to completely uh, end their lives at any second. So uh, agreed with you there. Agreed with you there. (sighs) Okay. I think that's it. I'm I'm just very moved by the episode. I I hope I've gotten out, you know, a lot of what I wanted to say about it because 
uh, when I record a podcast like this, I just want to do what I can to honor this work that I've watched and been so touched by, you know? Um, but I, I just thought it was absolutely amazing. And, um, yeah, I hope, uh, I hope you out there enjoyed it as well. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think at decoding TV at gmail.com. Um, let us know if this worked for you as well, but much more to say about this in the decodingtv.com bonus episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of the show at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Find us on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at decodingtv. Christian Spicer, where can people find more of your work on the internet? All right. Long form about video games. I have a newsletter. It's called Let's Chat Games. And you can subscribe for free at tinyletter.com slash Christian Spicer. If you're listening to this around the time when it comes out, the one I'm working on right now is this idea of why we as people are more likely to consume and enjoy uh, seven out of tens when it comes to TV shows and movies and be happy with them than we are to consume and be happy with seven out of tens in the video game world. So that's what that next newsletter is going to be about. And if you like video games in general, Jeff Kanata and I host a long-running, celebrated video game podcast about all the latest news and, and reviews of vi- happenings in the video game world. It's called DLC, and you can find that wherever you get your podcast of choice. Don't laugh at Jeff Kanata, David. I heard that. No? Yeah. I, it's, I, mean, I was going to say, cri- critically acclaimed. It, it's, a, it's a claim by me. I listen very regularly. I really love the podcast. It's acclaimed so. by Entertainment Weekly, my friend. There so you go. The, the acclaims are real. Uh, it's not acclaimed by Acclaim, which is a now out-of-business <laughs> video game studio. But <laughs> I love DLC. Check it out for sure. Um, but... Anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Decoding TV. We'll be back with another episode next week. Uh, And until then, goodbye.